This is the Bristol Cable. this global trade in decomposing animal parts. And the theory these hobbyists have is that BSE started because of these bones coming in from other countries and being fed to cattle around Bristol. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. The Agriculture Minister, John Gummer, today enrolled his daughter, Cordelia, in his campaign to persuade people that eating beef is safe. But later he munched it himself to prove to the world that he at least is confident there's nothing to worry about. That was former MP John Gummer in a publicity stunt at the height of the BSE panic in 1990, eerily reminiscent of Boris Johnson's questionable COVID handshake video. Today on Bristol Unpacked, we are talking mad cow disease, also known as BSE in cows and VCJD, as it's known in humans. Why are we talking about that? Well, it's kind of connected to today, really, that lots of people back then in the 90s didn't quite know, and still to this day, how it started. So people filled the gaps in. People failed to trust science. There were lots of vested interests, and conspiracy theories arose as to um, why it happened and how it started. Very similar to today with covid And we talked to a documentary maker uh, from Radio 4, Lucy Proctor, who's made a series called The Cows Are Mad. And uh, we have a deep dive and a long conversation about this and also its origins in the West Country, how there is a connect there. Enjoy. All right, Lucy. Hello. Thanks for coming on. We obviously know each other. We've worked together in the past and we want to talk about your new series. Fair to say it's getting a bit of a buzz. I've seen quite a lot of interaction. Yeah, it's done quite well. It's done quite well. Yeah. And that's called The Cows Are Mad, which is a brilliant title. How important are these little punchy titles? How important is that? It's really important. The thing is, is people have got so many podcasts to listen to these days. You've got to somehow get their attention. So like the artwork and the title are really important. Actually, I pitched it as the cows are mad. I don't Mm -hmm. know why it just came to me. And then when we were making it, I sort of wasn't sure about it and I hadn't had that much feedback. So I changed it just to mad cows. So it was just going to be called mad cows. And then we called it mad cows for ages. And then when we got right to the end of the process and we were sorting out, putting it on BBC Sounds and everything, it turned out that everybody really loved the original title, the cows are mad. So then I had to change it all back to the cows are mad again and like re-record some of the endings of the podcast. The thinking was that it was intrigue people a bit more mm. than mad yeah. cows. I think that was the idea. Yeah. You've been, how long with the BBC? 11 years. 11 years and you've made yeah. a lot of stuff. Would it be fair to say that the thing that you've done that's had the most prominence or the most profile is The Coming Storm, which was an award-winning documentary series about QAnon? Yeah, so that went out the beginning of 2022 and it was about January the 6th, basically, which obviously had happened the year before on the 6th of January 2021, which is when a mob or whatever you want to call them stormed Mm. the Capitol in Washington, D.C. because they wanted Trump to be president rather than Joe Biden. So it was about why that happened, basically, and it was about how this kind of story of the idea that Hillary Clinton was at the head of a cabal of satanic paedophiles that had taken over American democracy, how that story had got into the minds of so many Americans and motivated them, many of them, because many of the people that went to January the 6th believed in that story to a greater or lesser degree. People believe in it in different ways. Some people believe in it literally. Some people believe in it in a kind of slightly allegorical way. But that is. What but it was a mad. It was a mad time in general. What tended to happen in, in, in particularly around that time, because of lockdown and everything going on, it was a slightly weird kind of period where you tended to have people, and I knew those people that went down the rabbit hole a little bit, yeah, that had never really been engaged or interested in politics at all, and you seem to have a polarized opinion on this stuff. It was either people that had bought it hook, line, and sinker. Or people that went to the other extreme that were like, there's no such thing as conspiracies. This is all nonsense. You're all crazy. You're all mental. You're all mad. Yeah? Yeah, totally. What I particularly enjoyed about The Coming Storm is rather than 
rubbishing all of it as being conspiratory nonsense, you did try and understand and unpick where this stuff originated from and why people were drawn into it. And also the acceptance that sometimes there are things that are covered up. Absolutely. There are, there are conspiracies. And we've, oh God, do you think we've gone that we've polarised a bit on this at the moment? People are in sort of two camps? I think so. I think I'll take it in two parts because we did the main series of The Coming Storm, which was seven parts, I think seven or eight parts, which was specifically about this kind of QAnon story. And actually, when you looked at the story, because the, we were particularly interested in Hillary Clinton and the Clintons, which is the genesis of this story, this QAnon story, this idea that Hillary Clinton's like a witch who's like in charge of the satanic cabal. When you go back, this idea that the Clintons are evil, if you like, that had its basis in lots of suspicion around the Clintons, mm. which was seeded on the early internet by their enemies. And some of it was completely made up. And some of it was worth looking at. So one of the stories that we went quite big on in The Coming Storm, one of our main characters was a woman called Juanita Broderick, who claims that she was raped by Bill Clinton in the 70s. Mm. And she is now quite a big name in the QAnon world. She was at this big QAnon conference that we went to. And actually, her story is credible. It was covered by multiple investigations, but in the end, it was not taken seriously by the establishment. It wasn't mm. covered up in a kind of conspiracy theory way. It just wasn't taken seriously by the mainstream media and by mainstream politics for various reasons. And so you can see why if you're Juanita Broderick and all people that follow her online, that there is something there that people want to know more about. Obviously, Bill Clinton denies all of the accusations completely and nothing has ever been proved one way or another. Mm. But that kind of idea that her story never got properly told, that then builds a narrative. Other stories as well around how the Clintons operated in Arkansas in the early days. So there's all this stuff around the Clintons that actually the mainstream media, if you want to call it the establishment media, right or left, didn't cover. That's a driver. And there are other drivers for why people distrust this mainstream narrative. And I think it's really important as journalists who are in the mainstream media, what me and Gabriel Gatehouse, the presenter of the podcast, were constantly trying to do is just check ourselves and think, you know, we are part of this establishment media, even though we're not necessarily particularly establishment people. Where are we not really looking hard enough at some of these stories? Where do we just accept truths? Yeah. And that's where you get conspiratorial thinking, I think. Well, because it creates a sort of gap of uncertainty, doesn't it? Or if you're not prepared to go there, people will fill their blanks in. There's other examples as well in the coming storm around social media control at Facebook, these meetings that did take place about censoring certain right-wing content, Hunter Biden stuff as well. You know, so actually if you... When you look at it, I, I think actually in an odd kind of way, the people that are opposing or see themselves as being the guardians of the mainstream are almost feeding these conspiracies unwittingly, actually, I think. Well, the Hunter Biden episode was another really important one. So we had all the Clinton stuff, which the mainstream mm. media had always said, this is made up, blah, blah, blah. And actually there were questions to answer. Then we had at the end of, we, we did these two extra episodes. We did one around this idea of groomers and trans rights. And we did another episode around Hunter Biden's laptop. And these are both kind of modern examples of where the establishment media has not done a very good job of covering those stories. So on the groomers idea, so this is the idea that kind of like LGBTQ teachers are grooming kids in schools and you've got Ron DeSantis going really big on it and a lot of the Republicans still going really big on it. In the mainstream media, they just kept saying, there are no surgeries on children. There are no transgender surgeries on children, but there are. And we yeah. fact-checked that. So where you've got the mainstream media saying, this isn't true, there's nothing to see here, that then fuels people to think, well, we can't trust anything they say then. Yeah. Similarly with Hunter Biden's laptop, um, Gabriel got really into that story and it was really he suggested that we did a full episode on that and I'm really glad we did. Because again, this was a story where the liberal establishment media was saying, this is a completely made up story. There's nothing on Hunter Biden's laptop. This is just conspiracy theory. This is just political attack. And actually, 
there was a story there with Hunter Biden's laptop. It wasn't exactly the story that the right wanted to tell, but there was a story around what had happened with Hunter Biden's laptop. So I think what we're trying to do with the coming storm is look at these ideas that people, and we're making a second series, we're just starting it now, is look at these ideas that people have that are fueling conspiracy theories, fueling their suspicion, perhaps fueling them to take quite dynamic action in some cases, and asking why do they think that and why don't they trust the mainstream narrative on this? And actually, is the mainstream narrative wrong or does it have some gaps in it? You mentioned Gabriel Gayhouse. He's a well-respected presenter, reporter, news night, and you know, you've seen it, seen in that kind of mould yourself. You work for BBC Radio 4. I'm just interested when you pitch this as an idea, did it take a bit of persuasion to, to get it over the line? Well, it changed a lot from the pitch to what it became. Me and Gabriel did a lot more with it. So that mm. stuff about the mainstream media narrative wasn't in the pitch. That was something that we came to later on. But no, the commissioners are really up for that. They're really interested in those stories. I think that's one of the reasons why it cut through is it's quite refreshing, I think, for people yeah. to be challenged themselves with their own sure. ideas. But you're challenging it from both ends, I think. Perhaps you're challenging people in that orthodox space, but also I think because it's presented by Gabriel, because you're producing it, because it's BBC Radio 4, I think you're also, it comes with a degree of, oh, there must be something in it if they're doing it. Whereas I think if it was probably done by somebody from a slightly more left of centre or even right of centre media outlet, it would be sort of dismissed a little bit. As I think who yeah, you are totally. was important to cross that line a bit for some people. Yeah, I think that's the privilege of working for the BBC, isn't it? Is that obviously there's problems with the BBC in terms of what people think of the BBC and not everybody believes what we say. But we do have mm. a certain privilege in that we spend time on these big, long podcast stories. We do a lot of investigative journalism and people do still respect the organisation, I think. E equally, I did because I was trying to share it to sort of people I know. So I listened to this, this is great. And people that were sort of flirting in that space, and I'd probably say 50% of them were like, oh, I'm not listening to that, it's the BBC. Yeah. It's the, so me, And I noticed in, in the programme itself, you broke the fourth wall a little bit a few times and said that. Yeah. They see us as the enemy. We're the enemy when you went to these yeah. conventions in the States and that, yeah? Well, when we went to this QAnon conference, went to this conference in Dallas, which was an amazing experience, people there, just to say, were extremely nice. Although at one point we did nearly get chucked out because they got cross with us. But on the whole, they were really nice. They weren't like fascists or anything. Yeah. But a lot of them loved the BBC. They were like quite happy that the BBC were there. And then one of them, when we were in the audience, one of this woman turned around to us and she went, you're not CNN, are you? And we were like, no, we're the BBC. And she was fine with it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose there's layers of, there's levels of enemy, I suppose. Exactly. Isn't but that actually, you said about the people being nice. That was the one thing that struck out to me. I think sometimes these people are sort of demonised as cranks or fools. And actually what came across was the human side of them, just like ordinary people that kind of just have a certain sort of belief system. And I think that's a nice way to approach it. Yeah, people are people, aren't they? Obviously in that kind of world of January the 6th, there are some violent people. There well, are some racist people. Yeah. But that is not characteristic of all of the people that are involved in QAnon or are involved with January the 6th. There's a really wide range of people, a really wide range of beliefs. Mm. And to be QAnon or QAnon adjacent does not necessarily mean you're in any way a bad person or necessarily have hold particularly offensive views, actually. There's a spectrum and I think you've got to take people as they come, whilst obviously doing your sort of due diligence on people and yeah. being honest with the audience. Somebody believes something you've got to tell them that that's what they believe and then they can make their own minds up but I'm not really into this sort of journalism that tries to go after conspiracy theorists who are not putting out overtly racist or overtly misogynistic content I think it's more helpful to try and understand what they're doing it's just more interesting for the audience I think to try and get into the characters of people and try and yeah. work out what's going on here in this weird time that we're living through and it, yeah, and approaching you in that sort of spirit of curiosity. But there were some characters, and whilst you probably didn't have to two-foot them too much or challenge them too much, they revealed who they are. You said there were some people that aren't very nice and quite nefarious characters that came through. What I find interesting was you didn't even... they Yeah, they showed who they were anyway. People do show who they are. People will say what they believe. And if you just talk to people for long enough, you don't, you don't need to trick them into saying something. Also, you don't need to exaggerate how bad these people are. They're not 
most of them are not trying to harm people in the real world. And their ideas are harmful if you think that having conversations around some of these issues is harmful. But Mm. I'm not convinced that seeing everything as harmful is necessarily a hugely useful way of looking at things. Do you think things have gone a bit hyperbolic where kind of everyone is, there's literal violence, literal Nazis, fascism being thrown around left, right and centre? Do you think it is a bit hyperbolic? I think the issue is that depending on which side, let's say right or left, although those terms are getting a bit difficult to use, aren't they? But let's say Mm. you've got a progressive way of thinking and then a more conservative way of thinking. I think on both sides, particularly the left, actually, they see some people and particularly opinion formers and and people who are putting stuff out in the media, they put it all in one bracket. So the term far right, for example, has become a completely unusable phrase now because it can mean anything from Tommy Robinson, who obviously is far right and does advocate some views that people certainly wouldn't agree with. Mm. But it also encompasses, for example, supposedly people who just have different ideas around immigration or gender or any of these kind of hot button topics. So I I think that, and then if you're on one side and you see that somebody is in the other side, there's this tendency to ascribe all sorts of motivations and views to those people, particularly around racism and misogyny and these kinds of values. And they don't necessarily believe racist or sexist or misogynistic things. A lot of these terms have become very woolly now misogyny as well you know people could say sexist things that you don't like it doesn't mean they're a misogynist that's quite a strong word mm. far right it's a strong word you know i've done stories on actual nazis who really want to hurt people they are nazis and people in QAnon, apart from some of the people who were using QAnon to for their own ends they're not nazis mm. yeah it's interesting you mentioned about tommy robinson because what I thought was quite an interesting and quite amusing thing was that there was an argument between Tommy Robinson and Nick Griffin on the day of the march when he got arrested in in, in London. And uh, Nick Griffin, the former BMP, was because Tommy Robinson now is sort of pro-Israel and Jewish people, Griffin was like, you're not a proper fascist, you're not a proper Nazi, you shouldn't be doing this, you're, you're a shill for uh, the, the Israeli law. And I just thought it was quite an interesting pivot. That argument became about who was or wasn't the most fascist, which is the opposite to what we see usually. Totally. I mean, yeah. you know, it, the problem is, is if you call everybody a Nazi or a fascist, you lose sight of the people who actually are Nazis and fascists and, and that we do need to... Well, if I was, if you were a Nazi or a fascist, proper bona fide, I would like nothing more than everyone else to be called one because then I can hide, I can go, well, I'm not, everybody is, aren't they? Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, Tommy Robinson is another good example of what happens when the liberal mainstream establishment media doesn't cover stories properly. So, for example, immigration for the entirety of the kind of noughties in the tens. I was working in, in the BBC throughout the tens. And every single story I went to, immigration was mentioned. Immigration was such a big topic for people. And yet in the media, it wasn't really covered in terms of how it was affecting people. What are the pros? What are the cons? What are the complexities of immigration when your area changes really fast around you? What happens to people's views? And Tommy Robinson has capitalized on that. He's capitalized on this kind of weakness uh, we seem to have in discussing some of these difficult issues and that allows nefarious people to get people on their side because they feel they're being ignored. Exactly, and they'll be listened to and they'll perhaps, you could argue, be exploited or you could argue just be given some legitimacy to their views uh, and then that opens up the Pandora's box bit. And on the, um, the coming storm stuff, what I find fascinating around how conspiracies gain ground. And I think QAnon to me, what I saw, you know, the Pizzagate stuff, which went on before, the Alex Jones, the David, the kids I knew that were into conspiracy theories in the 90s. And I probably flirted with it a bit and sort of added a curiosity towards it. Were stoners are in their bedroom, just listening to music and kind of curtains drawn, playing games. It was a sort of like a skatery type thing. Suddenly, I'm noticing guys, bricklayers I know, scaffolders, have swallowed this stuff hook, line and sinker it definitely had some cut through. And I still can't quite understand how and why. I think social media, like it's never that interesting really to be like, oh, social media's changed the world. Mm -hmm. But social media did change the world, right? And so I think that, 
you had to go looking for these things before. You had to be in certain subcultures. It was pamphlets and newspapers and books. Then it turned into some video stuff, but it, it, it there just wasn't that many outlets for it. One of the things that we looked at in the coming storm is the way that you had all these conspiracy theories that were floating around for years, since the 90s, as you say. But then when social media came in and certain people understood how they could use social media to mainstream these ideas, then you get this explosion. You've hit the nail on the head now, which I think happened, right? And I was trying to say this to a couple of people that I knew that had fallen down this hole, who were being quite judged and dismissed by people. So like mm. you just said about not wanting to push people to the margins. I would be like, look at the types of people that are driving this thing, or at least just allowing it to gain hold. I think what happened is, and you say this without saying it, because obviously you have to make sure everything's backed up, is that I think at some point elements of people on, on the right, probably more so, yeah, populist right, I want to define it, realise that actually this is a really good way to get people on board with a message. So I almost feel to a certain degree that there was a conspiracy theory to hook conspiracy theorists into it, and it was done by design. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that what we sense? did. Yeah. yeah, that's what we say in the coming storm. There were certain Republican operatives around Trump in 2016 and then again in 2020 who understood the power of this QAnon narrative that there's this evil cabal, that it's mm. not just politics, it's a battle between good and evil, like a religious battle between good and evil where like Satan is what you have to defeat in the US election, not just Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. It's like Satan, right? Yeah. That's, they understood the power of that narrative and they understood how to clip it up, make it into memes, make it into kind of clever little stories. And then QAnon came along, which was a brilliant way to package all of these conspiracy theories up together and then sell it back thing. out to people yeah. in a really simple story that there's no proof for it. There's no proof against it, but you can believe in it. But it became led by people in the establishment, I, I, guess, I guess is my point. So what's been interesting for me is people like Alex Jones and David Icke that would saw themselves at the kind of the lexicon of this stuff in the 90s. They don't like all this new stuff because they're like, I guess they've been made a little bit redundant, but also they feel that they were, you know, outriders, anti-establishment. And now the establishment has cottoned on to what they do and have created and packaged this it's almost like a manufactured indie pop band kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like Fox News. You know? Yeah, they're using the same tactics and they've brought the same people across. Exactly. And it's just really interesting that, yeah, the establishment worked out how to become anti-establishment. Yeah, totally. Obviously, it was Newsmax and Fox who were repackaging. And they were careful. You know, people like Tucker Carlson, the Fox News presenter, he's not Fox News anymore. He's now got his own Twitter thing. They were careful. They never, they don't explicitly say, oh, I believe in QAnon and I believe in all this. They just give little crumbs and they do segments on certain mm. aspects of it. But yeah, they totally mainstreamed it. And the other thing that mainstreamed it as well, which was interesting with QAnon, was the whole wellness community. You know, there's a lot of people who are not on the right who are really into these theories. Actually, what we're doing for the second series is looking less at the kind of cabal of satanic paedophiles idea and more at this idea of this kind of cabal of like the elite, the financial global elite, which is what QAnon has turned into now. So that's actually got quite a lot of crossover with like anti-capitalist culture. The whole wellness yoga culture got very drawn into QAnon. A lot of that was via being anti-vax with COVID. So that all supercharged it, right? Yeah, you're right. It's big, it's coming from both sides. But the new agey stuff's always slightly flirted with that world a little bit, I think, but it's definitely massively, hugely amped up. And, and you say about satanic paedophiles and stuff, and this is really interesting to me as well, is, you know, all right, whether they're satanic or not, I don't know. People like Alex Jones were talking about Epstein Island before anybody, Lucy, decades before. And they would turn around and go, well, where are all the rests? The woman's been arrested for trafficking. Who was she trafficking them to? The invisible men. So actually, yeah. this, again, is an example of a story that feeds into that. It doesn't take a lot to exaggerate and get to that satanic paedophile stage, does it, from something like that? Exactly. I mean, they were talking about Epstein. They're talking about Epstein even more now because, of course, still nobody's been 
uh, arrested yeah. or the no. black book still hasn't revealed no, well, anything. No, where's the black book? We're going to look at that in the second series. Oh, yeah. The other okay. interesting thing to look at around that was this. Did you see this stuff around the film called The Sound of Freedom? No. Really, really interesting. Again, this idea of like this split reality that we're in where like one half of people believe completely in one narrative, another half believe in another narrative, never the twain shall meet. So The Sound of Freedom was a blockbuster film that came out this year in the States, hugely successful, absolutely panned by the liberal media, one star reviews throughout. Amazing story about this guy called uh, Tim Ballard, who's real. He's like a guy who's going after paedophiles for the US government. And then he goes off on his own and he starts doing these raids and he starts trying to like catch paedophiles. And it's true, like he did catch paedophiles. There are rings of paedophiles that do steal children and subjugate them and put them to work as prostitutes. This does happen, but they made a film about it. I mean, there's also some embellishment in the film, but when the film came out, it was so divisive. So one side is like, this film's amazing. Why aren't we doing more about child trafficking? Why aren't we doing more about child sexual abuse images online, which is obviously an absolutely massive problem. Mm. And the other side was just like, this is just QAnon conspiracy theory. It's all just complete nonsense. And this film is terrible and should never have been made. And again, this is where you get the power of this narrative is they're like, hang on a minute why don't the Liberals want this film to come out? Why don't they want to watch it and and take any notice of it? It's obvious some Mm. of it's actually true. Why don't they care? This idea of like, you know, worrying about children is very powerful. Yeah, and then the reaction to that then becomes, I've seen things online with them, you know, there are entire underground bunkers and communities where these children are being kept. Exactly, just And then it then leads into the conspiracy thinking, yeah. But it starts there. Starts with a kernel of truth. This is the advert bit, mate. We've got a new campaign at the Bristol Cable. It's called Beyond the Bullshit. And it's basically putting up two fingers to the right-wing media, millionaire-owned newspapers. Don't buy into their whipping up of division and hatred. Become a member of Bristol's independent community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. I, th- I think it's, it's important to talk about the coming storm. A, because it's brilliant and it's fascinating. But also it leads a little bit into sort of why I guess you're doing this next thing because it's, it is different, the cows are mad, yeah? But there is a thread of a connection which is around this alternative space of people that have ideas and conspiracies and how they gain ground. The reason also for talking to you is that not only are you a West Country girl from Swindon originally, this story touches the region, doesn't it? And it has a connection to Bristol. Just explain to me first, before we go into that, why you wanted to make this podcast series. So I, it's quite weird. I just had a thought. I was like, I wonder why nobody's made a podcast series on mad cow disease, because that was absolutely mental. And everybody remembers it. Everybody over 35, 30 remembers it really well, because it was crazy. And it, I started thinking, actually, that was another crazy time when there was this illness and nobody knew what it was, like a COVID precursor. And it was actually, once I started looking at it, it was in many ways a COVID precursor in terms of the cultural connotations of it. Mm. And then once I started looking into it, I just realized that there were all these characters, all these people whose lives had basically been defined by the BSE crisis. It actually started in the late 80s, but things really did go quite crazy for a while in the early 90s with mad cow disease because on the there was two things that made it crazy. The first thing was that the establishment was saying there is no problem here. Nobody's going to get mad cow disease. It's not going to jump species. And then there were a load of other people saying it definitely is. This is going to be absolutely curtains for loads of people. And you had this just like split of what people believe and paranoia because of that. Nobody yeah. knew whether beef was safe or not. The government was saying beef was safe. Obviously, that reminded me of like the beginning of COVID and Johnson shaking, Boris Johnson shaking hands with people. Yeah, because like, no, the politician, no you're right. It was that whole thing where the politician came out, John Gummer eating a burger, British yeah. beef is great. That was exactly like Johnson shaking people's hands and hugging people, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was this idea, which is uh, what they're talking about now at the COVID inquiry, of course, which is how do you make decisions? Do you wait until there's proof of the dangerous thing? Do you wait until it's proved, scientifically proven, 
that COVID is airborne, for example, or that BSE can cause VCJD in people? Do you wait for the evidence before you take action? Or do you think, God, it would be really bad if that did happen. Maybe we should take some precautionary measures in case it does happen and not be quite so sure that it won't happen. The difference with BSE, when you start looking into it, is there's this really long incubation period with these diseases. They're called prion diseases. They're these proteins that go wrong and they're mainly in the brain and and these proteins eat away at the brain of whatever animal it is, whether it's a cow or a person or a deer. The problem is, is that there's a very long incubation period. So in cows, the incubation period's like five years. And we'll come to why that's important in a minute. In people, the incubation period can be decades. So you're not going to know whether or not it's going to kill people for years after the event, which makes it all really weird as well. And then the second thing that made me really interested in it, apart from the kind of COVID government response stuff, was the way that then this search for answers about where it came from becomes this really powerful story. So with COVID, obviously, we've got all of these discussions around where COVID came from. Was it a lab leak? Is it some kind of bioweapon is the most crazy idea? Was it the bats? And that was so divisive. Science was divided. People were arguing. If you were on the left, you were primed to say that the lab leak was a conspiracy theorist, that like right-wing people believed in the lab leak. And actually, as we've learned, it's not clear cut and we don't actually know. Well, he got Trump was going around, wasn't he? Calling it the China virus. And and we still don't quite know where it did start, do we? We don't know where it did start. It's not as simple as just saying, no, the lab leak is a conspiracy theory. And the same with BSE. They never, ever found out where BSE originally came from. They don't know who that first cow was because it was a new disease. And that's why you have all these people who fill in these gaps. And that's what happens, I think. And I didn't know that until I listened. I binge listened. I went for a walk and sat in a pub drinking Guinness and pretty much listened to the whole thing. Mean, was it 10 episodes? Something like yeah, that, it was 10 it? episodes. I like that image, yeah. Neil. I'm, thank you <laughs> yeah, for doing that. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was great. And I, in my ignorance, I just presumed... We knew what the cause was and it was cows and, and that's what it was. But it wasn't well, it until was you cows, went into it. Like, it was cows. So what we do know is that the, the way that they made cows into cannibals, right? So they, they fed cows to cows. Yeah. That's what made it into an epidemic. But what they never found out is where did it come from in the first place? They don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the other thing around some of the practices around farming around that time it's pretty nasty. Sort of obviously people are a lot more aware now of where they get their food from and more people have become vegan, more people vegetarian and stuff mm. like that. I was things around the kind of cannibalism thing. Just that, well, that they was, still do that, just to be they, clear. Uh, do they? they don't yeah, they don't feed cows to cows anymore. So they've banned cows being fed cows. I think they've ba- the ban is still in place for ruminants, as they call it, ruminants eating ruminants. But mm. farming, meat, the meat industry does grind up the waste of animals like chickens particularly and it does then feed that back to chickens to pigs on the one hand it's kind of disgusting to think about it and actually once they realized with the prion disease thing they're a bit more careful about that now but Mm. the meat industry will say look this is us being efficient this is a circular economy we're using the waste from our process yeah. to give you the billions and billions of chickens and pigs and cows that you insist on eating population every year. So if we want the amount of meat that we seem to want, they do have to do quite drastic things to grow it. Yeah. And I guess that's always that dilemma between human health and economics. And I guess that's the big cut and thrust of the whole series, which is are there legitimate reasons as to why we collectively find ourselves in this situation where our farm industry is how it is? Because it's because of us, isn't it really? It's because of demand. We eat a lot of meat in the Northern Hemisphere, I suppose. And it's quite hard to grow that much meat and make money from it unless you start bringing in some of these intensive practices. Yeah. I mean, you sort of allude to and obviously what did your characters in the in the program allude to there being a slightly sort of cozy relationship between big farming organizations, the government, health bodies, and how it you know, reminded me of a little bit. I mean it's a completely different example, but I've just been finishing reading this book by Grenfell and how there was many times along the way where authorities turned their back or ignored. It's a similar kind of thing that actually led up to this point of mad cow disease where there are a number of the rules and regulations of 
health and safety and et cetera. So we're just wielded lower and lower until we find ourselves in this situation. Yeah, I, I think that there's a kind of common thread, isn't there, which is that governments try to regulate things, but they're constantly being told by whichever business they're trying to regulate. If they regulate too much, they're going to damage the business and damage the economy. And these people can always say, look, nothing's happened. Like Nothing's happened yet. It's not until it happens that you realize that mistakes were made. Now, there's loads of people along the way with BSE, with Grenfell, with COVID, who were saying along the way, guys, something's going to go really wrong here if you carry on down this route. But they're always ignored in these cases because they don't have the evidence that it's definitely going to happen. They can't say it's definitely going to happen. And if you're a government, something might happen in terms of something bad safety-wise, or you're going to definitely lose profits for this business who is important to you politically. So they've got a kind of maybe versus a definitely in terms of how they're making decisions. So in a way, you can understand why they do that then? It's not so much that you can understand it. It's just that it's, you can see the perspective. I mean, one of my favourite interviews yeah. in The Cows Are Mad is in episode four with a man called Sir Richard Packer. He was top civil servant in the Ministry of Agriculture during some of the most crazy years of BSE. It really did define his career. And he said, yeah, you know what? We are thinking about the economy because the economy and human life for him, this is his perspective, but you've got to listen to it really. The economy and human life are connected. And we saw that during COVID, that if you make certain choices and you affect the economy, people pay the price. People's Mm -hmm. lives are affected if you affect the economy. 178 people died of VCJD that they caught from these diseased cows. Could they have prevented those 200 deaths? They probably could if they'd had made some more drastic decisions earlier on in the crisis. But making those drastic decisions would have cost a lot of money it would have damaged the beef industry. And so they do have quite difficult choices. I'm not taking their side or defending no, politics but necessarily, easy. but you, it's easy yeah. to just say, oh, well, they should have done this. Yeah, if you have no responsibility and there's no consequences of, of what your decisions are, then it's very easy, I guess, to have a, a mission and a call to change stuff. And there are parallels, I think, with COVID, with Grenfell with you know, in any of those types of situations when... It's a difficult choice, isn't it? And I think sometimes... I think Grenfell's slightly different, actually. I would suggest that Grenfell is slightly different because Grenfell Mm. was a specific thing around fire regulations, which were, you know, whittled down over the years. And okay, it's safety... But it's also deregulation and it was money-saving exercises. But it was really money-saving. It was really about about profit for the companies that were building those buildings. Whereas with COVID and BSE, these are these kind of much bigger, large scale population wide threats and risks. And that's where politicians, I don't think politicians with Grenfell are making particularly difficult decisions, like don't put flammable cladding on a building, right? But with COVID and BSE, those are difficult decisions if you're trying to take kind of population wide or farming wide actions that could damage the entire economy because the beef industry and the dairy industry were massive in our economy at that time. Yeah. Uh, you speak to an array of quite interesting characters. Was there anything that for you, you didn't really know much about that really stood out and you were like, oh, wow, that maybe shocked you a bit? Yeah, there were things that shocked me. I didn't know about the meat rendering process and, and the kind of recycling of cows and the cannibalism type stuff. I also didn't know the extent to which they still didn't know how people contracted VCJD. So not only do they not know where the cows got it from in the first place, they also still do not know exactly why people died. So exactly how did they get it? Again, this is because of the incubation period. It's very difficult to trace. If it's taken 15 years for your symptoms to arise, obviously you're not going to find the particular burger or the particular thing that caused you to get it in the first place. But They really don't know. So one thing that they do know is that it was children that contracted. So everybody that died from VCJD, almost all of them contracted it when they were young children and they're Mm. not sure why. And so there's obviously a kind of tragedy with VCJD in this in that it was, you know, these people got it when they were children. One of the theories is that children lose their milk teeth 
or they quite often have like tonsillar infections and maybe that creates a breach and the infective agent, the infective bits can get through like that. But I found it quite surprising that even all these years later, they still actually don't know exactly the root of how people got it. Their Mm. best guess is that it was cheap burgers, like cheap processed food. But But they don't know for sure. Yeah, exactly. Because like you countered that a bit in the program and said, well, and and I think one of the experts did said, well, if that was the case, there would have been considerably more amount of deaths than there were. So it's not that clear cut. Yeah, the the kind of consensus opinion on this and the kind of top scientist who's a guy called John Collinge, who's been part of this story for a very long time and is the kind of one of the world's leading experts on these prion diseases. He says, look, at the end of the day, it's luck. There might have been these various reasons why certain people got it. There's also a genetic thing, which is not that big a deal because it's like still loads and loads of people have the particular genetics that makes you more susceptible. So it doesn't explain it. The species barrier is really good. It's actually quite hard to get from like your stomach through the various bits of your body into the brain. There's lots of kind of barriers along the way where your body's going to get rid of this thing. Mm. But yeah, they just don't know. And I think it's quite instructive sometimes to understand that science doesn't always give you the answers. Sometimes there just isn't an answer. And we're really bad at accepting that as people well, because I think people see science as being sometimes like infinite. Science is always evolving as well, isn't it? And, and exactly. it's, science today is not what it was 25 years ago and in 25 years from now. No, um, science isn't about you know. necessarily giving people all the answers. It's about coming up with hypotheses, testing them. Once something's disproved, then you can say that didn't happen. Uh, like, it doesn't necessarily the, just prove everything. You can't no, prove everything. But that's the challenge. That was the issue, effectively, wasn't it? A bit like a kind of a crime scene that isn't investigated at the time. These pe- people didn't look into it effectively for whatever reason, and that's where I guess the conspiracy people fill the gaps in. Well, why weren't people that curious to really get to the bottom of this at the time? Because they weren't really, were they? Well, I think that people have priorities at the time, don't they? So... At the time when the BSE crisis kicked off, which it really kicked off in the late 80s when you had thousands and thousands of cows coming down with it and they really started to worry about it. In 1989, they brought in the first round of kind of measures and stuff to try and stop it spreading amongst cows. Their main goal, the kind of vets who were leading the the work on this, they wanted to stop it spreading. That's what they were interested in. They weren't interested in the origin because it just wasn't, it, they didn't have time for that, really. No. At the well, time. you don't like, do if you see a yeah. If you see a, a tragedy unfold in front of you, you, you need to try and they're quell to that. It. Yeah, yeah. For and sure. like you say, then by the time it's under control and you get to the BSEA inquiry in in late nineties, it's published in year two thousand. It's too mm. late. You can't trace yeah. it. You know, so then, it's I, with, with to COVID your, yeah. in a way. It, it, yeah, know. there's parallels, isn't there? And, and you you hint at that at the back end of the program when you tie it up. I want to go to that in a minute, but before that, I think two things were really vivid for me that stood out. One was, and forgive me because I can't remember her name, the parent whose child... Christine Lord. Christine Lord, who died. And the way that she spoke around, which we haven't really touched on yet, around the actual symptoms of this disease just sounded absolutely horrible. Yeah, And also her, her anger and her frustration at, at not being validated and listened to and propelled her on a sort of campaign a bit. Just tell yeah, us a bit about she's, that. Christine was an amazing person to get to know in the course of the podcast. We're still in touch. Her son, Andrew, died of VCJD in 2007. He was only 24. An awful death, an awful experience for a mother and his sister to go through. It was a very cruel way to die. So people, again, this kind of, this sort of paranoia and delusion that was part of what was going on in the wider culture, that's what people also were suffering personally because at, at the first stages of VCJD, variant CJD, so CJD is the brain disease that you get, you can actually get it not just from cows, it can happen spontaneously in people and does happen spontaneously in people. But the one that you get from cows is called VCJD, variant CJD. He got that. He would have contracted it when he was a kid, probably when he was five or six. Then it lays dormant. And then when he's in his early 20s, very successful in his early 20s, he was a producer, he was doing really well. Yeah. Starts off with like depression and anxiety and um, mental health problems is what VCJD starts as. So that's what a lot of these young people 
first presented with. And then it's, it's not till a bit later that some of the movement stuff, then they start having trouble walking. And it tended to be once the kind of physical stuff kicked in that people started really thinking, oh God, what's happening here? Um, but yeah, very, very sad story. But Christine's really amazing woman who's basically, she does other things as well. But one of the things that she does in her life is raise awareness of this. And she still wants to get answers as to exactly what killed Andrew. What could it have been? Was it a government failing of some kind around some kind of product? Because there are lots of products in the dock that all sorts of things had beef in them at the time that you wouldn't think had beef in them. Yeah, she was an amazing character. And I think the, not just character. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And the, again, the parallels, it just made me think and feel some of the interviews I have heard of people who've lost loved ones to COVID and that powerlessness, that almost lack of validation, that feeling almost ignored and pushed to the sidelines. Yeah, I think it's really hard when you've had a personal loss that's part of a big national story because there's this kind of national story and these big decisions being made on this kind of population-wide level that you obviously were getting into those decisions at the moment with the COVID inquiry. But for the individuals, if you're a mother, you want somebody to make the right decision for your child. You don't care about the population. You don't care about the economy. You don't care about all of these kind of factors that are being weighed up. You don't want your child or your elderly relative or perhaps your disabled relative if it's COVID to be put in harm's way. You don't want people to be making decisions that basically say, there might be a bit of collateral damage here, but we're going to yeah. take that collateral damage because we're weighing up other things on an individual basis. That's just impossible to accept. Yeah, 100%. The other thing, and I think this is what connects to Bristol, tell me if I'm wrong, I wasn't quite sure if it was proven it was or it was hinted at that we're trying to work out where this stuff was coming in from, this stuff that was being fed to cows. And they managed to trace it back to bones that were picked up on the River Ganges, which could have been cow, could have been chicken, could have been human, that were then shipped across the world, landing up in Bristol docks, grinded down and fed to, well, not just to cows, to animals in general, and dock workers were getting ill. What, two died, is that right? Three yeah, so what happened? So this is a theory. So again, there were all these yeah. people yeah. still who were trying to work out where BSE came from. For some people, it's become an obsession, I would say. For other people, it's like a hobby. Other people have a very kind of serious kind of feeling that they have a duty to try and work out where it came from to stop it happening again. One of the theories is that this disease came from a practice during the kind of 80s, 70s, 80s, the meat industry needed so much waste, so much kind of animal waste. We had a protein crisis, basically, after World War II. There just wasn't enough protein in the system to feed to the cows and the pigs and other animals to make them grow, to give us protein. Right? So this was, again, this e is an economic decision it's forced economic by our... And this kind of really crazy, this isn't a theory, this is that, this really strange, uh, to me, practice evolved, this global trade in decomposing animal parts, big container ships, crisscrossing the oceans, full of like bits of cows, bits of animals collected from meat processing factories, collected from farms, collected from all sorts of places. Now, one of the places, and they know this as well, they do know this, one of the places yeah. that they got bones from, yeah. which Britain's chemical industries needed as well, like you needed it to make like uh, sugar, you needed bones for the chemical processes. One of the places they got them from was India. And one of the places that they know that India got its bones from was from these bone pickers, this kind of bone picking yeah. industry Wh that India Which I, had. What I didn't say is obviously the Ganges is famous for the burning gats where bodies are burned through a cremated, it's like yeah. a kind of big thing there. So, so there would be bones lying around everywhere. There'd around be bones the, the, the getting banks. washed yeah. down. And so yeah. then these guys who were involved in looking at origin theories for BSE, they were like, well, what if actually... Because one of the mysteries with BSE in terms of where it came from is also it very easily turned into a human disease, crossed into humans. Didn't e not easily in terms of population, otherwise more people have died. But it, mm. it was a completely new prion disease. They posited this idea that what if it came from people in the first place? What if it came from somebody who'd spontaneously developed CJD and then that yeah. had 
So we gave it to the cows. We gave it to the cows and the cows gave it back to us. Yeah. Now, yeah. in the end, that theory, they could never prove that theory. And like, the consensus scientists rejected the theory and said, look, there's various reasons why we don't think that happened. Well, one of them mm. is just like the statistical likelihood of it. There's just way more cows being fed to cows than there are potentially human bones being fed to cows. But what looking into that theory revealed was the strangeness of this kind of global industry and the way that bones were being shipped and they were coming into the docks in Bristol and Avonmouth, these bags of bones. And then what they were doing is they were being used as fertilizer on the fields and they were being used in animal feed. And there's two epicenters for the beginning of BSE, um, mad cow disease. One of them's in Kent. There were lots of cases in Kent. The earliest known case is around Christmas 1984. But there's a theory that actually there were earlier cases than that. And they were around Bristol. They're around the West Country. So these are in like 83, 84, 85. Vets are starting to see cows behaving in this strange way. They're starting to see this new disease that had never been seen before in Kent yeah. and around Bristol. They don't know what it is. And so they recorded these strange diseases. It's not until the late 80s, early 90s that people start looking back and thinking, oh, hang on a minute, was that mad cow disease? And the theory that some of these hobbyists have is that BSE started around Bristol because of these bones coming in from other countries and being spread on the fields and fed to um, cattle around Bristol. So it could have started here. Uh, We've always been ahead of the game, always been pioneers. Basically, it's either you guys... Or Kent. Yeah. Usually I like to claim, oh, Bristol's first to something. That's great. <laughs> I don't know if we want to be claiming this as, or maybe we need to just thing. say, let, let's just say it's Kent, I think. Should we All say right. Kent? You, you yeah. can do that. I'm going to leave it open between Bristol and Kent. At the end of the programme, you talk about a zombie deer in the distance, hinting to some sort of mysterious thing around the corner that actually... You're, you leave this kind of open. When is the next big thing? Obviously, we had the next big thing. Is it going to be one worse? And what are we going to do? How are we going to respond? How are we going to react? I just thought it was a lovely way how you connected it all. Thanks. Yeah, the, the deer thing's quite crazy. I mean, if, if you go online and look up zombie deer, these poor deer, they're jumping around doing backflips in the fields in America. So they've got quite a big problem where huge numbers of their deer have these prion diseases. And once again same as with mad cow disease, they don't know if it's going to jump to humans and they won't know until it does. And by the time they, they know it has, it will be too late because loads of people will be infected because the first infection would have been 10 years before or something. So they are quite worried. These prion diseases are really interesting. It's only recently they've even been able to kind of see what they are with new microscopes. Interestingly, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around prions now. So prions have been folded in to COVID conspiracy theories. Then uh, there's this bigger issue, which we're hearing about right now at the COVID inquiry, which is about zoonotic diseases and the fact that there's going to be more. There are going to be more outbreaks of dangerous zoonotic diseases. That's not really a kind of question about whether that's going to happen. The question is just kind of when and what are we going to do about it? After making this programme, do you feel confident that we have learned some mistakes and, and we will be, be in a better position and more effectively, you know, red, oh, ready I don't know. to react? No, I'm not so sure. A lot of lessons were learned in BSE. Mm -hmm. The inquiry was seen as a really good inquiry and lessons were learned. There was this kind of idea of silos and hierarchies. Things did change a little bit after that. Obviously, it didn't change to everybody's liking because we still had this issue around science and trust the science when we came to COVID. I just think these things are extremely difficult to handle because you've got policymakers, politicians who are being asked to make decisions on incomplete evidence and they're not scientists. And then you've got scientists who are being asked to make what are effectively political decisions and they're not politicians, and you've just got this mismatch. And I think it's just coming out in the COVID inquiry how it's not really that clear how government is supposed to work in these instances. Who's supposed to be making the decisions? And even, dare I say, Dominic Cummings was alluding to this when he first came in, that actually these are really old, archaic institutions that perhaps aren't ready 
to react swiftly and don't have the right skilled people in place to respond well, to these sort of imminent disasters. The problem is, is, is a more of a human nature problem, I think, which is that it's quite hard to be the person to say, let's lock down the economy or whatever, when nobody's died. And when you can't tell if it's even going to be that bad. And if you make the wrong call, if you're like too risk averse and you you do something that's going to affect loads and loads of people's lives and then the thing doesn't happen. So it turns out not to be that bad. It turns out not to jump species or it turns out not to be that dangerous. Then you start looking like somebody who just trashed the economy or trashed whatever bit of the economy you're talking about. It's an incentive issue. It doesn't, sure. It's not good. Whereas in hindsight, you might look good for having done it, but you can't see into the future. Yeah. So people make decisions based on what risk they can see right in front of them. They do. And I don't want to go into this too much, and I'm sure you don't. But with the COVID situation, we knew very well what was going on because we could see what was happening in Italy, what had already happened totally. in China. Totally. So yeah. the evidence was in front of our eyes. Totally. So I, you know, that's Which is why it was all so weird. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, cool. The final thing is just about trust, really, because I think this underpins a lot of this stuff. How can politicians get trust back? How can people, and not just that, even the media. It's almost like the same people that are anti-politics are sort of anti-media now, aren't they, really? In terms yeah, of that, that whole thing yeah. about How, how yeah. can we change that, do you think? It's a big question, I know. It's a really big question. I really believe that the way to win trust is to do what the BBC tries to do. It doesn't always manage to do it. And the BBC is a big place, so people approach things differently within the BBC. But I think journalism as a whole, it's got to get better at not being biased, about not closing down certain ways of thinking that are inconvenient for the narrative that you're trying to tell. The other thing is just taking time. Journalists are quite busy these days. There's not a lot of money in journalism anymore and we all worked quite hard. So sometimes this is just a case of not having the time to look into things properly. So... If all journalists had a bit more time, we'd do a better job on some of this. But I think we've got to be really, really careful that our own politics or our own kind of upbringing or the kind of social milieu that we are kind of living in doesn't make us shut down or ignore stories or things that people are saying. We should look into everything that people are telling us and see if it's true or not. And if there's some truth in it, we should say that there is. Do you think people are kind of scared a little bit to do that, though? No, because of, you you mentioned social media earlier, there's more blowback than ever now, isn't there, for the media and for journalists, politicians as well, that if you deviate a little bit and go for a, a quite a risky type story, and you've done some, I know, that you have to be quite brave to do that. And if you're a young journalist that thinks, oh, crikey, I don't want to, do you know what I mean, a little bit? Yeah, I don't think it's a job for a really young journalist. I think it's a job for experienced journalists. This mm. is like quite hard investigative stuff. If you're working on the news, you just do not have time to look into all of these claims really carefully. So that's this sort of different kettle of fish, which I won't comment on. But in terms of investigative journalism, long form journalism, these kinds of podcast series, I think they're really useful and can be really useful in really getting into a story and trying to work out exactly what's happening in this story and why people think what they think. And I don't know if, if you do need to be that brave. We haven't had any problems from the journalism that we've done. I just think that it requires you to say things that perhaps your mates aren't going to like you saying, your family aren't going to like you saying, right? It's that thing around sort of safe space and all that, isn't it? And as you say, being able to tell stories or talk to people that don't fit into a particular belief system or a particular view, which when I grew up, that was what people did that were anti-establishment by definition that sort of drew me into journalism and now I, I do feel that yeah that there is a sort of silo thinking and a bit of a kind of mentality around things is that also social media for you why that why that's the case yeah I think there is a generational thing that's happened and again yeah I don't want to like insult any no, sure. younger people I'm 41 I think that thing I was talking about before where you see people on the other side as being you know, if they're a bit right wing, then they're like probably got all of these other views. Without even meeting them, you think that they've got all of these other views. This idea also that talking about certain things is harmful. Like the yeah. idea that just doing the story um, yeah. on Hunter Biden's laptop or something, 
or on the LGBTQ stuff is harmful just in itself. You're, That's well, you're giving a platform. You're giving a platform. You're perpetuating literal violence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. quite difficult as journalists. Journalists should not be getting into the idea that certain things are harmful to investigate or harmful to do stories on. If something's true, then there's a story to be done. If even if just people think something and it's having an effect on the world then there's a story to be done. We've got to be mm. quite careful, in my opinion. I'm not supposed to give too many opinions as a BBC journalist, but in my opinion, this idea that certain stories, even if they're true, are harmful, is quite a dangerous road to go down, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm not here in a BBC capacity, so I can say that I quite categorically <laughs> agree with you on that. And I, I think it's quite dangerous, actually, because where do you draw the line with stuff like that? Right, one thing I want to ask you, actually, you say you're doing the next series of Coming Storm, which if anyone hasn't listened to it, go ahead and do so. You need to really tune into it, though, because it goes quite deep on it all. Kaiser Mad, that's done now? Serious news, no? I've actually got another story that I'm really interested in, which is somebody contacted me after the Kaiser Mad went out, Yeah, which is another great kind of British 90s story that involves animals and conspiratorial thinking and government cover-ups and stuff. I'm not going to say any more, but I'm hoping that I can get a Series 2 commission. Let's see. Please give me a second Series uh, Radio 4 if you're listening. But at the moment, now I'm concentrating on the second series of The Coming Storm, which is going to go out around the presidential election in 2024. Sort of autumn. Autumn 2024 will go to You're the going to be state. over the pond again, are you? Doing some yeah. stuff, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, quite interested in AI. I think we're going to yeah. look at that a bit. Exciting stuff. Yeah, that's it. Job done. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to documentary maker and journalist Lucy Proctor for joining us on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. And we will be back next time with another great guest and a fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs, a journalist and documentary maker from Bristol. And big thanks to our production team at the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Essien Noise and Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>